giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hi, everybody. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Friday, September 7th. I am Ben Orenstein, and I'm here with Sean Cribbs. How's it going, Sean? It's going great. How are you doing, Ben? Awesome. Uh, doing really well. So uh, I, uh, I did a bunch of research on your life in preparation for this podcast. And uh, so I just want to lay it out real quick, and you can tell me if I got it right. So you started off uh, studying computer science. Mm-hmm. Uh, get your BS computer science. Then we moved on to sort of a, a bit of a turn. You did some graduate work in music theory and composition, which is completely related to the computer science. Absolutely. Yeah. And then um, went on a freelancing sp- streak for a while, a few years of that. Did some work on Radiant and then ended up at Basho, where you are today, right? That's correct. Um, one, one little detour you missed was okay. that uh, while I was... Uh, while I was in graduate school studying music theory and composition, I spent three years working as a choir director at uh, you know a Gothic style church in in downtown Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, beautiful, interesting. We'll have to talk about that because yeah. I'm I'm a singer as well. Oh, good. So it's kind of interesting. I was I was I, I felt I, I sent an email. I felt like I was kind of interviewing myself this morning. <laughs> it's like computer science person, Ruby person, musician, yep. and but that's actually a surprising amount of overlap in that for whatever reason. Like the, I sing with a. Uh, our assistant direct a chorus out in Waltham, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and we have about 60 guys, and I think probably like 38 of them are engineers or programmers of some kind. Yeah, it's interesting. And, uh, a friend of mine from undergrad, um, oh, the, the other detour we missed before I talk about him, yeah. is that um, I stayed an extra year at University of Tulsa um, after my CS degree to get a BA in music. Um, okay. Otherwise, it'd be pretty hard to get into graduate school for for music theory and composition without right. like an undergrad degree in it. But uh, to back back to my friend, he was a trombone performance major in undergrad, and um, he ended up doing a master's in computer science and is now a programmer. Um, funnily enough, like being a trombone player, I, he was like the last person I expected to become a computer programmer. But yeah. there's just a lot of overlap. Um, I don't know if it's you know people use their 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 uh, their one hemisphere of their brain too much in in the computer science thing and they need the balance out mm-hmm. or it's just that uh the you know the the problems that you solve in music and the problems you solve um in uh programming uh are similar enough that they require like you know as a person with with multiple talents yeah I, I actually so my personal theory is it's something along those lines because so one of the things that attracts me to programming so much is that it is a blend of both sides of the brain to me right. so you have this aspect of it where you have to be completely rigorously logical because your code has to work in a mm-hmm. very logical fashion but at the same time you have almost unlimited freedom in how you're designing a, the thing right so there's a creative aspect too like how can i make this code beautiful how can i make a beautiful solution to this problem right and sometimes those the those moments of inspiration that you really need from that creative side help you solve the really hard problems that, you know, you, once you have that inspiration, you can follow through logically. Right. And, and, and so I, I, think, I think the reason for this overlap of music and programming is you have, I think, the same phenomenon on the music side, which is to play piano wonderfully, you need to have uh, rigorous technical competence where you, you know, play every note with the right duration and with the right loudness and all that. But you also have this much, this higher level concern of, am I making music here? Is there an arc of this phrase? You know, does this sound plaintive? Things like that. Right. And I, there's actually been, um, studies of, uh, musicians, uh, specifically, um, I, I saw one, it was about an organist and they, you know, they did an MRI of his brain uh-huh. while he was playing the organ. And the interesting thing is they, they saw, or it, may, it might've been, um, with a ECG or EEG anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but they basically measured the, the electrical impulses in his brain while he was playing. And they found that um, large areas of the brain, especially um, ones that, that, that cross the hemispheres, like the corpus callosum, um, are activated 
when you're playing music. Um, so you have, you're, you're not only, you know, doing the physical motion, uh, whether with your hands or, or with, with your breath or both. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you're also uh, listening to what you played and analyzing it. Right. And also trying to have this, this, uh, creative, uh, part of your brain, uh, at work so that you can, uh, you can be expressive and, and, uh, and have the music, uh, mean something to other people. Hmm. Awesome. That's good stuff. So you, uh, you're quite a frequent speaker. Yeah. A lot like. lately. Yeah. Um, it, it was funny. It, it, it started about two or three years ago. Uh, that I started getting, uh, speaking around. I, I'd done a lot, um, in, uh, with, with Ruby for, for a long time up to that point, and then I started being able to talk at, at places. Yeah. I don't I don't know what it is. You, it takes a challenge to get into it, but then once you're into it, you can't like get rid of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I'm hopelessly addicted myself. Right, I, and I love interacting with with uh, people and hearing about their projects too. So totally. So uh, this we should probably talk about your role at Basho because that sort sure. of ties in nicely to that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm a software engineer at Basho, um, and. Uh, which basically means that I can work on whatever projects are available mm-hmm. um, and whichever projects are you know most important to our customers. Um, but uh, historically, I had been uh, working on the Ruby client driver for React. Hmm. Um, that's how I got into Basho. I started uh, working on it as a contract uh, in January 2010. Oh, okay. Um, and then uh, three months later, I was on board. Um, I spent quite a bit of time at Basho uh, up until this January, I guess, um, uh, as a, we now call them client services engineers. So it was like a technical support person. Um, but I was also responsible for doing wide ranging things as like evangelism and, and documentation and, um, yeah. you know, going on site to help a customer also helping them through like, you know, our automated support desk, taking phone calls. Um, but I was also programming on the side. So like now my, my, my area of work is much more focused. I'm more on programming and less on the, the support side. Okay. Um, but in the end, I, you know, we all get involved in what our customers need and want. So, yeah. um, we're all kind of still, still, um, on that. But one of the things, um, back, back to the issue of speaking, uh, one of the things that I started to do early on, um, and was given the freedom to do, which is wonderful is to, to go speak about React, go speak about, uh, using Ruby and React together. Um, and so, uh, I've been to a number of conferences in the last two years, uh, and probably, probably built up more miles on my frequent flyer account than I <laughs> care to mention. Yeah. But, um, but it's, it's been great. And, um, there's, there's, uh, I think there's a lot of excitement in the industry now, mm. um, around the topics that, that we're interested in Basho. Mm. At Basho. So, uh, your, uh, your personal site says that you are a, a developer, uh, evangelist, is that it? I think so. Uh, yeah, I probably haven't updated. Oh, developer my advocate. Yeah, that's what we used to call them. Um, okay, and that was supposed to reflect the the wide ranging nature of that uh, that job. Yeah. Um, now I'm just a software engineer. Okay. And I just program. It's funny, uh, I, but. I th- I think if there were a different, uh, a different job for me, like I love being a thoughtbot, I think a developer advocate would be awesome because it sort of mixes like you're, you're writing some code, you're also writing blog posts, you're going to conferences, right. you're teaching people. And honestly, that's actually kind of what I do now. It's just right. <laughs> I'm not advocating a specific tool or anything like that. Um, but I, I, I love the idea of that, that position. It's kind of like someone who is rigorously technical, but also is going to go, is able to teach people and present things in a clear way. Right. And it's, it's actually been a really competitive advantage, I think, for us, um, that we have uh, extremely technical people um, who, you know, if they wanted to one day just, 
you know, flip the bit over to software engineer instead of, you know, client services engineer, um, that they could do that without any trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of, uh, you know, I said it's a competitive advantage, that kind of really knowledgeable support makes people really happy. Um, oh, yeah, you totally. can deliver, you know, the exact solution that they need to fix their problem. Um, you can help them find ways to do something better. Um, you know, uh, you also have a deep understanding of the product because you're not, um, you're not just, you know, in the call center all the time, mm-hmm. right? Take, taking, you know, going through a script of, of exactly. how to support someone. Exactly. You're, you're actually thinking hard about their problem and you, 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 you learn the product deeply. Um, I, you know, we, we've been saying it for a long time, but I, I still believe that, uh, our, our client services engineers, know our product better than our software engineers. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting. You, you say that people like it, and, and on the side of being the guy, the guy being supported, it makes such a huge difference. Like I think there are like Heroku and Stripe or other companies that I've worked with where I feel like the person on the other end is like me just working for that other company. Like right. they're also a software engineer. They've built Rails apps. They've had problems. And like we're talking at a very, a very high level because we're, we're almost the same person. And it, it makes it such a huge difference versus when you call, like, I don't know, your health insurance company or something like right. that, <laughs> uh, where clearly the person is, like you said, they're reading from a script more or less. Right. Yeah. Huge difference. So we should probably talk a little bit about um, what REAC is. Sure. Um, REAC is Are you a... familiar with it? Have you? Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> Um, no, Reoc is a, a highly scalable, highly available distributed key value store. So what that means is uh, it's a peer-to-peer system. Uh, so in, within this, this, uh, the system, there is no master, so there's no single point of failure. It's, it's great for operations. Uh, it's great for, uh, for scalability um, because you, you don't have to rely on, on the availability of, of a single node um, to, to coordinate things. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it's a key value store. So it's really, it's really got a simple data model. Um, for people who are familiar, uh, it's based roughly on the Amazon dynamo paper, Mm -hmm. um, which was their system to support shopping carts, um, that were highly available. So you could always add an item to your shopping cart. Uh, even if the, you know, you couldn't retrieve the previous value of your shopping cart, you could always add a new item. Um, and then, you know, sometime later the data would come back together um mm-hmm. and and um you know they might have a consistent uh snapshot of your shopping cart when you go to checkout right so so one of the things that it seemed like was different about react or this type of database is that it's eventually consistent right and i th- i think it's important to define what you mean by eventually consistent please do yeah um because there there's a temptation to hand wave around that term um but the the essential aspect of eventually consistent is that things will converge over time. So if you are just like, well, I'm not going to require uh, all of the rep- replicas of my piece of data to participate, um, that doesn't mean you're eventually consistent. That just means that you're potentially inconsistent, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, REAC includes, um, these, these are things from the Dynamo paper too, but uh, includes uh, elements of automatic anti-entropy. Um, which we are read repair, which is you, you try to update stale replicas, uh, when you read a value mm-hmm. from the, from the key value store. Um, and there's hinted handoff, which means that, um, if, if one of the replicas is not available, you can write to something, uh, that's, you know, just, uh, a fallback, um, spot. And then later that data will be handed back when, when the, the original 
replica becomes available again. So can, can we walk through just sort of an example with that? Yeah. So like, so, um, so one of the benefits it seems like to me is I have a bunch of data and I want to get it in the store and right. I can just basically say, Yo, Hey, store this data and then kind of go away. Um, okay. Because it's going to be written eventually, right? I'm not waiting for this to get replicated across or well, I, I distinguish between asynchronous and eventual. Okay. Um, so by eventual, I mean that, um, with any ordering of events of, you know, things that you've written to the data store, yeah. you will eventually approach the same value in the end. So even if, even if one of them misses, like one of, one of the, one of the replicas not available, eventually you'll get that value through the various mechanisms that the system has. Okay. Um, the nodes are talking to each other and, right. and yeah, right. They're talking to each other and your application's interaction with it, uh, encourages that, that consistency to be approached. Hmm. So you said read repair. So what's yeah. an example of a read repair? Like how, how, what does that look like? So like, let's say you have a, a four nodes in a react cluster mm-hmm. and, uh, for some reason, uh, one of your nodes goes down, like, you know, you had a hardware failure or somebody who was, uh, you know, fat finger to kill dash nine or something. Yep. Um, now you have uh, one quarter of the replicas in your whole cluster unavailable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, for the sake of remaining available, React will say, okay, I, I can detect that that node is not there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to, when I receive a write for a, uh, a replica that that node owns, I'll send it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like, so if it's, if it's node four, I'll send it to node one. And then, um, and then that means that when node four comes back online, node one notices, oh, I have this data for you. I don't really own it but I'm going to send it back to you so that you can get up to date. Mm. Um, but what the, the nice thing about that is that um, minor failures uh, in, a, in, a, in a cluster mean that, don't mean that your application that's using it is severely affected. So um, there, there's a, a great anecdote from uh, the Postris uh, team. Uh-huh. Uh, they deployed a three-node no, three React cluster, um, and uh, one day one of the developers accidentally shut one of the nodes down uh-huh. and they didn't even notice nice. because the other two nodes were taking over for it. Yeah. Um, and their, their load was, was shaped such that they didn't uh, notice any drop in throughput or yeah. increased latency. So um, that, that kind of elastic flexibility mm-hmm. is what's really unique about React. When I was reading about it, it kind of um, a bit of it reminded me uh, of BitTorrent swarms. Right. There's a lot of similarities there uh, between, because BitTorrent relies on a distributed hash table, which is essentially what React is, mm-hmm. uh, to find blocks in, in the, the, the file that you're downloading. Yeah. Is distributed hash table easy to explain? I don't have a good grasp on what that means. Okay. Um, that's just like a hash table that's yep. spread across lots of machines. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> you jerk. <laughs> right. Right. But, but there, it's, it's even more subtle than that. So React has a concept uh, of a consistent hashing. Um, which uh, says that uh, you basically think of the all of the keys that you might store in React as a continuum from zero to a really large number. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think of that, you can you know you can think of that as laid out a- along a line, or if you can think of that as an angle around a circle. Okay. Um, so uh, React uses a deterministic casting function. We actually use SHA one. Okay. Um, which has 160 bits to it, which is a pretty big key space. Um, so every time you make a request to React, it will uh, it will hash the key you're looking for. 
Mm -hmm. And that gives it a value that determines what area of, of, of that, you know, 160 bit key space, uh, to look for that key in. Hmm. Um, so, uh, so that's one aspect of it. Um, the, the next aspect is that in, if you think of that as a ring, we actually divide that ring into a fixed number of buckets. We call them partitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that does is allows us to assign those partitions to nodes in your cluster. So your node, a node in your cluster is not going to have a, a, a consecutive, uh, contiguous uh, range of partitions. It's going to have an interrupted range of partitions. Interesting. Um, so what... The, the next step is the consistent part. Besides, besides the, the, you know, just the key always hashes the same place. It's also that the, the design of consistent hashing is such that you move the minimum amount of information when you add a new node or when you remove a node. Uh, okay. Um, so having the partitions uh, rather than just a contiguous key space that we kind of like randomly pick spots in yeah. um, makes it easier to, to guarantee that and to reduce the, the effect or rather to spread the effect of adding or removing nodes from, from the cluster, um, uh, or spread the load of that around. Right, because other, otherwise, if, if you didn't do this, so you, had, you added a new node, and then uh, it potentially would have no data copied onto it or immediately, right? It could, uh, right, and that's, that's actually, you know, I, I talk about it very, very instantaneously, but it takes a long time. Sure. Especially if you've got a lot of data in your cluster, for that new node to be to be uh, ready to serve all of, the, all of its requests. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually what happens is the, the, um, when, when you add a new node to React, it'll pick a number of partitions that it wants to take from other nodes in the cluster. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it'll gossip that information around, and the other nodes go, oh, okay, so you, know, you own this now. I'm going to start sending it to you. Mm. Um, and then once all of the, the information is sent to the new node that's entering, um, those old nodes shut down the, the, the portion of the, the partitions that they own mm-hmm. or used to own, um, and requests start going to that new node. Now, it's all ki- actually kind of, that's again, sounds like too black and white. It's actually gradual. So as soon as the, the new node has the da- any single partition of data from some other node, it can start serving requests for that. Sure. So, um, and it can also serve requests uh, even without uh, taking data. So it can just serve as a coordinator for requests because that information of the, the, the consistent hashing ring is known by all members of the cluster, so they know exactly where to go to find the key in a, on other nodes. Okay, so one node can help serve the request even though it doesn't have the data. Right, absolutely. Okay. And that's, that's another aspect of the, you know, no single point of failure. You don't have to talk to right. any of the, 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 by default, three nodes that own a specific piece of data to gotcha. actually uh, perform the request. So is the default to sort of, to, to then just like trade or just distribute requests evenly among the nodes as they come right. in? Right, right. And um, it's interesting too because uh, there, there are a number, of a number of other systems that have this a similar architecture to React in this respect. Um, the, the two big ones that come to mind are Cassandra mm-hmm. um, and Voldemort. Mm-hmm. Um, and Those are sort of your competitors, right? Your nemeses, right. more or less? Well, I, you know, Cassandra has a different data model. Uh-huh. Um, so that, that, that is, a, you know, an, another aspect of it. Um, but Voldemort is uh, probably the most similar to us in terms of, in terms of how that, that works. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, React does uh, one thing that, that, that uh, those other two don't do, which is automatically select who gets 
what partitions, who gets what portions of the key space. Mm. Um, and so we've actually spent a lot of time, you know, with some really kind of uh, interesting constraint-solving algorithms mm. uh, to figure out what's the even most even distribution of the key space with the minimal number of partition transfers and with the the um uh, the maximum amount of uh, diversity in the distribution of of those partitions mm. um so so you don't always have like cuz you know if you think about it just like striping the key space right if you had four nodes it'd be like 1 2 3 4 1 2 3 4 1 2 3 4 all the way around the ring um but that's actually bad because then you have um you don't have diversity among that so that so that uh if you if a single node goes away then you have like regular holes in your key space where replicas were hmm. um instead we try to permute it a bit right um of course that that works better when you have lots and lots of nodes because you can have more flexibility in your diversity right um but the um but that's that's a unique feature of reoc that the others don't do is that we actually automatically assign uh data to to new nodes so bringing up a, adding a new node on there is is pretty painless you just say hey yeah. here's a new node Go for yeah, it. there's a little command line until you go React Admin, Join, and then the name of another node. And as, as long as the node you're giving that command is not already part of a cluster, mm -hmm. it will join. Um, and then you can uh, you can see what you can act, actually, we, in the React 1.2, which just came out last month, mm -hmm. um, we released a new feature, which is a bit more um, stable uh, and, and, and uh, careful. <laughs> with with how you change cluster membership, so um, it will actually give you a plan of what's going to change. Oh, so it like calculates the new, um, and you can join multiple nodes at the same time in a single transaction, so to speak. Uh huh. Um, and look at the plan and say, yeah, that looks okay. I'm not, you know, reshuffling data all the way around. Um, and then you can commit it, and then it just works its way through the transition. So when so when a new node is coming in, since there is no master node, it must talk with all the other nodes, and somehow they all come up with a plan of like, okay, here's what we're going to yeah. send you. Actually, um, that's that's actually how it used to work. Uh -huh. um, we we've kind of uh, moved to um, there. There is you could say it's a single point of failure, uh, but we call it the claimant. Um, basically, what this means is that only one node in the cluster at any time. Uh, can be uh, responsible for make, deciding that transition. Okay. Um, but it's not uh, a single point of failure because, you, first of all, it requires all nodes to be up in order to make a transition. Or you have to, like, from an administrative point of view, specifically say, I'm going to ignore the fact that that node is down uh -huh. and perform the transition. Um, but so it's, it's actually really simple. It's just the lexically first node in the cluster mm -hmm. becomes the claimant. And it... Um, all of the, the the transitions of the the ownership happen on the on the claimant. Gotcha. So I'm not sure we. Um, I went deep into that, didn't I? <laughs> that's cool. No, it's good. This is good. I mean, I'm, I'm liking the details. Um, so I'm not sure we got a great description of what it means to work with something that's eventually consistent. Okay. So can you try to give me like an example or something that's sort of high level? Like, so I'm used to a database where. You want to put some information in, a transaction happens, it either happens or it didn't, right. and you know it's in there, or you know it's not. So how does the code I write have to change if I'm working with something that's eventually consistent where maybe it's not in there yet? Right. You have to assume that nothing is ever atomic. Uh, even requests that seem to fail may have... When I say that, I'm specifically uh, talking about writes. Mm -hmm. um, 
if they seem to fail, they may still have succeeded. Um, so what, what you, you want to do is, is actually you kind of tend to turn your data inside out. So, you know, relational database, you, you think about, I'm going to make uh, the tables as fine-grained and independent as possible. We call that normalization, right? Mm -hmm. um, the inverse is true with Rioc and other eventually consistent stores. You want to denormalize. You want to duplicate your data. Hmm. Um, and uh, more toward um, the, the use of thinking, what is the, the query I'm trying to satisfy? Not what is the, you know, the conceptual structure of my data, but what is the actual task I'm trying to satisfy? Um, and then that means if you've boiled it down to, uh, to just that task you're trying to, to, to satisfy, then you can usually do just key value lookup. Hmm. And so it's, it's really efficient. Um, but in terms of eventual consistency, what that means is um, if you have two writes going on at the same time, or at least um, they don't even have to necessarily be at the same time, but they have to be oblivious of each other, Yep. Okay. Um, that both of those values may show up later hmm. as a conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there, there are different strategies for how to resolve that situation. For example, Cassandra uses a timestamp, and that's like client-specified timestamp to decide which write wins. Okay. Um, and Rioc actually decides uh, with, with the proper configuration um, that we're going to keep both values. And then when the next time you request a read for that key it's going to present both values to you. And you need to make a decision which one is right or is there some kind of um, you know, merging of those two values that makes sense. Whoa. Um, so it is a greater responsibility on the developer to think about those problems. Yeah. Um, usually people end up, um, and unless they're, they're really certain that uh, the, the, the strategy they have to merge those two items is going to converge, you know, it's going to come on the same, approach the same value over time. Um, that they tend to isolate things. So, um, so pieces of data that change frequently um, will tend to be right once. Okay. So like you write it once, and then if you need that historical value, you go back and look for it. Um, but you don't, you, don't, uh, you don't do as many in-place updates. Um, that is one strategy around it. Um, uh, so you would create a new version of that object with a new value changed. You don't change, yeah, modify the Yeah, it would actually be a different key. Different key, okay, interesting. Or a, different, or a key in a different bucket. So actually, React namespaces keys within buckets, so you can like kind of conceptually separate your, your okay. things. But it's just, a, it's just a prefix. So if I have a user with an email address, I might, rather than edit the user email address on that same key, I would copy the whole thing to a new key with the updated email address. And well, it somehow depends. store um, that reference somewhere. So I actually think user profiles are a great use case for React because you really only have one person editing their profile at any time. Okay. So yeah. there's, there's low churn on that type of, that type of data. Okay. Um, but the, the things that are problematic might be things like, uh, event streams, mm -hmm. um, or, um, things that re re have interdependencies within the data type. Like, you know, you need to subtract from one thing and add to another. Mm. Um, those types of things don't converge or are difficult to converge. Um, and it's actually uh, really fun you bring that up, um, the, the, the thing about eventual consistency, because that's what I was working on in, in Boston this week. Oh, great. Basho team. Yeah. Um, they, you know, for, for your listeners who are going to be at Strange Loop, 
mm-hmm. um, I'll be talking about this uh, this topic at Strange Loop. Awesome. And and we'll, we'll also um, there's a we're putting on a conference. Bash is putting on a conference in San Francisco in October um, called Recon. Okay. Um, <laughs> And we'll also be talking about this. And my, me and my colleagues will be talking about this there. Cool. Actually, it's, it's funny you mentioned Strange Loop. That's definitely that's one of the conferences I would love to get into oh, one it's day. It's a phenomenal it conference. Seems awesome. It, it's it's uh, it's multidisciplinary in terms, at least within you know software development. Right. Um, and there's lots of people there on the cutting edge. Yeah. Um, it, their thing says their so their 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 plug is it's a multidisciplinary conference that aims to bring together developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as emerging languages, alternative databases, concurrency, distributed systems, mobile development, and the web, which yeah. is an awesome like subset cross section of the world basically absolutely and and it's where a lot of really exciting things are are happening in the industry so it's very cool one one little else thing i, pull, I pulled from their site was that says this, the conference is run by a team of st louis based friends and developers under strange loop llc a for-profit but not particularly profitable venture <laughs> that was pretty awesome yeah um alex who's the 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 primary organizer of that of that conference is is a really really great guy um and uh he he's um he he's been putting on a good conference for the for the last three years, so cool. I'm really excited to go back. Awesome. Have you spoken there before? Yeah, I spoke there last year. I actually spoke about uh, Reox MapReduce system last year. Okay. Um, and kind of designing your 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 application to use MapReduce in in useful ways. Hmm. And part of that was to take the the SQL mindset um, and translate it into the the procedural mindset that you need for MapReduce. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, a couple more things on React before we before we leave it. Um, sure. I, I noticed looking at your site. So, the, so the ba- it's an open source project. Absolutely. So, if you want to use the base basic React, you can. It's free. You can read the. It's yep. op- totally open source. Uh, so, you guys, uh, your business model is you have an enterprise version and something yes. called CS, which I'm not sure what that is. But those those are our paid products. Yes. Okay. Um, our enterprise version uh, includes some additional features. Mm-hmm. Um, most the interesting thing is that you know people are always, always like, well, why don't you open source? xyz feature yeah um but part of it is that uh, we the 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 feature that we're providing is um a significant value add on top of the open source um and it's also something that is really needs the support contract yeah um so uh the the main feature there is the multi-data center replication so by default you you tend to put React in a single cluster in a single data center or like if you're on amazon ec2 or, or some other cloud you put it in the same region um but uh, the multi-data centers for higher latency links uh, where you have less bandwidth, too. Uh, so, you know, like if you're replicating from, from United States to Europe or to Singapore or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So that's, that's actually a tricky thing to figure out how to do that yeah, well. Yeah, it, it is tricky. And I, I think that, you know, there, there have been some attempts to kind of build your own. Um, but uh, the, the, the problems you have to solve, specifically with, with networking, um, and with uh, with the the flow of da- data within the React cluster that is sending replication uh-huh. uh, is is very difficult, um, and we spend a lot of time on that. So gotcha. And so you guys also do sort of consulting services as well. Yeah, we we have um, you know it's it's all negotiable with our, with our customer contracts, but we have professional services as well. Yeah, uh, we do provide uh, some custom development services for uh, some of our customers. Um, and we've, we've had some people, uh, working with, uh, you know, a, a, a large customer of ours for probably a year now, um, just doing professional services. So, um, there's, there's, uh, you know, I, along with the support, you can also get, you know, pay, uh, 
by the hour type of sure. support. Do you know and can you share what the breakdown is in terms of like, are you mostly a software company that consults or are you like mostly a consulting company that sells? Uh, we prefer software? to be mostly a software company that consults. Okay. Um, and uh, I think, I think, yeah, I think lately our revenue has been breaking down that way. Okay. Yeah, looking at I just I mean, looking at your team page, it looks like you have more engineer team than professional service team by a good right. And I don't even know if our team page is up to date. We're we're probably up to close to a hundred uh, employees now. Okay, it's way out of date then because yeah, you got yeah. like thirty two <laughs> people on there. Uh, well, but not all of them are in engineering, uh, you know, or professional services or client services. So um, we 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 have uh, you know a number of, of salespeople and you know uh, administrative and um, and. Uh, uh, you know the marketing and stuff that that aren't don't show up on those those pages. Sure. So it, it's sort of an interesting business model um, mm-hmm. with an, an open source. Your your sort of value add around an open source thing. Right. Um, is that where? I mean, it sounds like it's working well. Yeah. And actually, the the interesting thing is, uh, open source gets them hooked. And right. then when they have a real serious deployment and they you know they need the the expert support we can provide. Yeah. Um, which is actually the support has kind of become our hallmark. Um, but the they're like, oh yeah, well, you know, it it gives a, it gives the them a feeling of um, there's low risk to start, um, but there's also low risk to continue using it because they can buy support when they need it. Right. Sure. Um, and they can buy the extra features when they need them. Um, and I think that's really appealing to to managers, but also developers because they're like, oh, I get to use this cool new technology, and my manager's going to like, oh, they have a you know a stable company with good support behind it. Yeah, I'll, I'll sign off on that. Right. Exactly. They have a professional-looking website with right. a lot of people on the page. Right, right. Yeah. Awesome. It's, like, it's almost like the freemium model. But. Yes, in, in some ways it is. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's more open than the freemium because, yeah, because we're, you give we're away, giving away the software. The, yeah, the, the, the free part is actually open source entirely. Right, so right. you could hack on, add on the, the premium yourself if you, if you were able. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so uh, Basho is based in Cambridge. Right. But you don't live here. No, um, I live in New Jersey. Actually, mm-hmm. um, uh, I've I've been freelancing before before I started at Basho. I've been freelancing for three or four years, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I've worked from home for for a long time. So, um, I most of our team is actually remote. Uh, we have office here. Uh, we have an office in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. We have one in in Ca- um, sorry, it is in Cambridge. Uh, we have one in in Reston, Virginia, and we also uh, just recently opened one in London. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of our uh, developers, uh, all of our uh, client services engineers, all of our professional services um, engineers, they're all remote, mm. um, and they can choose to go in the office or not, depending on what they they want to do. How do you like that setup? Um, it's great. I, I think that uh, it gives uh, that that feeling of of, of comfort. Um, you know, you can you can be in your own home or work from wherever you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, more importantly, allows us to recruit the best people. Right. So if we don't require them to be in a place or move to a place, um, then that's not a deterrent for uh, for hiring really great people. Totally. So so we're sort of we're moving more towards having remote people at ThoughtBot. So mm-hmm. for the longest time, we was we're only in Boston, right? And you have to come to Boston. Right. Uh, we're opening up an office in San Francisco now, a Europe thing as well, and. Um, Personally, I am struggling a little bit with there are people that are working in the San Francisco office that I've never met. They're just like right. names in a chat room, basically. Yeah. Um, so, and I feel, of course, less connected to those people. So in a completely distributed company where maybe you're only going to get together a couple times a year, how, 
do you miss any of that? Do you do you feel, yeah, experience we, that? We do. Um, I think that part of part of what makes it work is is a cultural thing. So um, since uh, with within you know the few months after I started at Basho, we were basically distributed. Um, you know the core the core group uh, that that founded Basho Technologies were here in Cambridge, mm-hmm. which is why we have an office here. They were Akamai guys. They were Akamai guys, um, and there were about six or eight uh, founders. Mm-hmm. Um, and they we we used to have a, a an office on um, on Broadway in Cambridge at the at the ITA ITA building. Oh. Now we've got a new office in Central Square. That's a lot of founders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, when I say founders, I mean I mean like the people who were there when I came on, right? Okay. Um, yeah. But you know, just a few months before I came on, they started hiring people remote, um, and so there's been for a long time at the company now uh, a culture of being remote, uh, which means that you you interact um, online um, through the chat room through Skype. Uh, we actually have. Uh, a mumble server now, which is like what people usually use for video game, you know, like live chatting oh, during yeah, video yeah. games. Sure. We use it for our daily, you know, scrum call, okay. basically. Um, and the, and, and then there's, there's, uh, you know, just a, a, an effort to use email and uh, online documentation to keep up to date. And so it's less like you feel like you need to be in person. Mm-hmm. But there are things like, for example, this week when I was up here working with uh, three or four of my, my colleagues that you kind of have to be in person because you just can't get the same bandwidth. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and so uh, we do all company meetups uh, two to three times a year mm-hmm. uh, where all of the employees who are available come to one place. Um, and that's usually where we, you know, do the sort of like company town hall type of stuff. Like, you know, CEO says something about how we're doing business wise. And, you know, each of the heads of department says, here's what my department's doing. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, departmental meetings where we, you know, talk about um, interesting things that we, we need to get done or things that, 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 uh, that are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we also break out by departments too. So, um, there, there's been a tradition, at least for the, the, the years that I've been at Basho that, uh, the engineering team will come to, uh, to one place. And the last two times it's been Denver, mm-hmm. uh, since our VP of engineering is in Denver and a number of our developers are there mm-hmm. in that area. Um, and we'll do a week of working together, um, on, on the, on the product, um, and also getting some training at the same time. Gotcha. Um, so there, there are smaller meetups and there's also like the whole company meetup, but, mm-hmm. um, we've been, we've been doing that for a while just to just to get the FaceTime and there's still people like, you know, especially with how fast we're growing. Yeah, I'm sure. I, you yeah. know, a, somebody forked one of our private projects this morning. I was like, who is this person? And then I go and figure it out. I was like, oh, that's, that's our new hire. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've been hacked. I was like, who's taking our private? Oh no, it's a, it's a new hire. So <laughs> I, I think I would, I would, I think personally I would struggle to work remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very much someone that like, I'm, I'm very extroverted. I thrive on sort of interactions with people. Right. Um, it, how, how does that work for you? I, I see you have a wedding ring on. I assume you have, you're married yeah, to somebody. Right. So you probably, well, it's, it's been convenient for me because, uh, my, my wife is a librarian. Um, her, obviously her job has to be, in yeah, person. She, does, she doesn't work from home, yeah. right? She can't work from home. Um, so I, I've, you know, being able to work from home, uh, has been a, a huge advantage for me, uh, career wise. Um, and it has also been, you know, a huge advantage for, for us, you know, 
um, as a married couple that we, we can just move to where she needs to move to. Oh uh, yeah. Totally. Um, and you know, while I'd love to live somewhere other than New Jersey, um, <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, I, I have that flexibility. Right. Um, and I also don't have to feel like, uh, my work is tied to a specific place, even my home. So if there's a day and actually the, the, the spot I am in New Jersey is convenient enough. I can go to Philadelphia or New York, mm-hmm. um, and come back the same day, uh, pretty easily. So, if I need to go to Philadelphia, um, or if I go to New York to go to a meetup or something, yeah. that's not a big deal. Yeah. Like it's, it's not going to be like, Oh, you, you know, you came in late today or, you know, are you keeping up on your work? Sure. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of trust, um, that is there for remote workers and you, you have to, you have to have that trust or it's not going to work. Do you work out of the house where it's empty? Are you, are you down with that? Yeah. 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 Well, I, I tend to be an introvert. Okay. Um, yeah. So you're comfortable with that. I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. Uh, sometimes I, I look in the mirror and realize, oh my gosh, I haven't shaven in five days. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, yeah, this is not looking good, but, but there's, um, but on the other hand, uh, it gives me flexibility to work when I want, sure. um, at the pace that I want. Um, and just to, to, uh, feel, feel relaxed. And, you know, there's, I've, I've read things lately that they say, um, uh, studies of companies that have tried remote workers uh, mm-hmm. are working from home that the people who work from home are more focused. They have, um, they, they get more work done. They probably work longer than, than they would if they came into an office, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a, it, at least for me, I don't know if it is for other people, but there is that, uh, that stress of commuting, getting ready for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, where is it? Where is it home? I can be more leisurely about it. I can go to my desk and work for an hour and then go make my breakfast, you know, or I can go downstairs and take my time making coffee and breakfast yep. and, and then, you know, go back up to my office. So, um, or I can take lunch early or late whenever I want. Um, and I only have to worry about, uh, points in time where I have to interact with my coworkers. Mm-hmm. Got it. So a couple more questions, and then we're gonna we're gonna get you on your way back sure. to New Jersey. So so I noticed when I googled uh, why React, the thing that comes up is a blog post on your personal blog, which is like a twelve like, like a probably like a ten thousand word <laughs> opus on the, that I wrote the glory of ago. React that yeah. you wrote before you were at Basha. Uh, it was six weeks before I started at Basha. Had you, okay. It, <laughs> my question is, did you write that to get hired at Basha? No, they okay. had already given me the offer. Oh, okay. Um, but the, uh, I, so interesting part, which we didn't, we didn't talk about how I got started at Basho. Um, I met the, the current engineering team and some of the executives at a little event, uh, in Atlanta in 2009, uh, called no sequel East. Hmm. Um, which is a great event. Um, we had, we really had a blast and, uh, lear- I learned a lot. You know, I'd been kind of hearing about this noise kill thing. I wanted to check it out and it was a cheap conference to go to. I was living in North Carolina at the time, so it wasn't that far to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then we, so I met them there. I was really impressed by the stuff that I'd seen from them. Um, and, uh, in December, um, uh, an acquaintance of mine said, Hey, you know, I want to use Reoc in my Rails application, um, and but there's really not a really good driver there. I was like, 
I'll write it because <laughs> I was a freelancer at the time. I was looking for new work. Yeah. Um, and I was excited by the technology. I was like, I'll write it. Right. And then uh, I got in touch with Justin Sheehy, who's the, our CTO. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, hey, you know, um, uh, so-and-so, uh, well, I should use his name, Tim Dysinger, uh, wants, to, wants to use React with Ruby. Um, I want to write the driver. Can we work out some sort of like uh, um, cooperative contract thing? Um, and we were able to, I, I, uh, became a contractor for a good six weeks. Cool. Um, came to Boston for my first time in February of 2010, uh, to work on site in the Basho office in, yeah. in Cambridge, um, for a week. And then it was around that time that, that they were, uh, ramping up the client services organization and they said, we need a client services engineer and you know, Ruby and you're a good programmer and you know, React now. Um, come on board. And I was like, I, I think I'm about ready for, a, for some real work. You know, 2009 was kind of rough yep. for a lot of people. It was rough for me too, uh, getting contracts. And I was like, I'm, I'm ready for a steady job. Um, and so I started at Basho and I, I haven't really looked back. Interesting. It's interesting that you could uh, sell them on paying you to write the client, which is open source, I assume. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and at that time it, it was that uh, they're just trying to get eyeballs in front of React. Sure. Like, oh, no, yeah, I, f- I think it's a reasonable business case to make to them. Yeah. yeah but I was, think I think there are people that wouldn't have thought of it, right? Like, oh, right. yeah, I mean, it's going to be open source too. I'll just go ahead and write it because why not? Yeah. But you're like, I also want to get paid. Well, which, yeah. <laughs> I understand. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, and if, if I get paid for it, then I can justify working on something that's that's open source uh, sure. and, and fun. Yeah, know? right. You can tell your wife that you're it's, it's profitable it's okay. and that's okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, how do you like working in Erlang? That's what React is uh, written in mainly, yeah. right? Yeah, Re- React is written mainly in Erlang. Um, of course, there's some there's some C C plus plus bits uh, for for certain things that are not good to do in Erlang, uh, especially like our storage engines are mm. primarily in C or C plus plus. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, but um, I I really love Erlang too. Um, and actually, that was another reason why I was drawn to Basho is that. I had seen before they before they announced React in August of 2009, and then I, I saw them present about it a, at NoSQL East um, later in the in the fall. Um, they I had seen some of their Erlang projects, and I was doing some Erlang myself uh, just on the side for fun to try to learn it. I wanted to yeah. I go like I've kind of mastered most of Ruby. Um, I want to learn something new, um, and at the time, you know some of some of the the prominent people in the Ruby community had said Erlang is the next thing, the next big thing. I was like, okay, I'll try it. Um, and uh, I made friends with uh, Kevin Smith, who's done some uh, some screencasts for the pragmatic programmers on Erlang. Okay. Um, and that's really what got me like over the hump into understanding how to do it. Those and screencasts? Those screencasts, yeah. Mm. Highly recommended. Cool. Um, we'll link to those. Excellent. So uh, I've been doing programming in Erlang and, and being able to understand that the code um, that's inside React has really helped me understand all of the things around it and how it works. Mm. Um, and I really enjoy programming in Erlang, uh, the, the, the concept of processes and message passing, and especially the, the reliability you get from it because you, you have, um, you have a, a crash-tolerant uh, philosophy hmm. uh, in the way you build Erlang applications. Yeah, so is that the OTP? Yeah, that's the OTP thing. So you, you build a tree of supervisors right. that watch all the processes that are important in your system. Right. And when it crashes, it can go, okay, I can decide whether to restart this or restart all of its siblings or 
um, restart them in a specific order or, you know, whichever you like. It sounded, it sounded really interesting, this model of the tree where at the leaves you have like a process and then yeah. the process is a supervisor and then there's a supervisor of the supervisor and like right. as, as far as you need to go, basically. Right. So, so you, can, you can group your, your application into subsystems of processes. Mm-hmm. And when like a whole subsystem fails, you restart its supervisor and then it rebuilds it from scratch. And the idea that it's better just to throw out uh, bad state than to try to figure out oh what went wrong with it and let's fix it and and all those things and you you actually um you get reliability because it's able to start from a clean clean slate mm-hmm. it's 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 interesting that's like part of me like the, the purest part of me is like well how did you get in that bad state why like it, it that's that's the interesting thing and and what what makes both erlang and Reoc interesting is that you never know what's going to fail um but you build uh, build the system such that when there is a failure, you can tolerate it. Yeah. You can say, it's, it's okay. We'll, we'll get back to that. We'll, yeah. we'll try it again later. We'll restart that process. We'll just wait until that node comes back up. Those, those sorts of things where you, you can treat it lazily, but, um, but you're proactive about keeping your state clean. Yeah. It's, it seems very pragmatic. It is, it is very pragmatic. And it's, it's things break. You, you want your system to bend, not to break when other things break. Totally. Um, so one thing I noticed poking around uh, in some of the React code was you have this thing called Dialyzer. Yes. Um, and it sounds awesome. So it says it performs static analysis of the code to discover defects, edge cases, and discrepancies between type specifications and the actual implementation. Yes. Could you translate that to uh, Ruby-ish? Okay. So there's, um, there's a project in Ruby called Laser. Okay. Um, which you may have or may not have heard of. Haven't heard of. Um, but the idea of static analysis is that you can determine um, at compile time uh, or post-compile time, depending on how your your, cor- your code was compiled, um, properties of the code. Um, so uh, that's what they mean by static analysis. You're not running the code to mm-hmm. find out what it does. You're looking at the syntactical and semantic structure of the code to determine what it does. Okay. Um, so Dialyzer actually helps us find... Uh, problems where we have uh, mismatched return values so you might call a function um, in some other module and it specifies its return value a certain way um, and then on the other side when you're trying to do something with that return value you use the wrong pattern um, then it can dialyzer can detect that and say hey you know this pattern is never going to match um, or the return value or maybe it's poorly specified you say you, you, you actually put explicit type specifications on your functions mm-hmm. saying what are the, the, what are the param- valid parameter values, the valid arguments, and what are the valid return types. Okay. Um, and if it can figure out within a single function, is it ever going to return one of those return types? Or is, you know, is, is the, the, the argument type too loosely specified or too tightly specified. Interesting. Um, so there's there's a lot of uh, you know it's it's traditional language design research um, um, and compiler research that goes into this tool, uh, but it, but it helps you find defects in the specification of your interfaces. Okay. Interesting. So so it, before you run it, it, it does it from, from it does the it, it does code. it from the 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 compiled code. Interesting. So, can, do you catch? Does it catch a lot of things? Do you find that it's, it's... yeah, it it does. Um, there are some things that it's difficult to catch because um, you might be specifying, uh, you know, a type that is too verbose um, to 
to specify uh, in, in the type specification language. So you use a type which is, um, you know, a, a more generic type of that. Uh, a good example is we have a, a library uh, that encodes protocol buffers, Google protocol buffers in Erlang. Well, there's this one function that we needed to implement uh, that would uh, skip, you know, it's, it's reading the, the binary, you know, the byte stream of values mm-hmm. um, or uh, of the protocol buffers message. And we needed to skip the field that's at the head of the head of the stream okay, um, because we want to ignore it. Well, how do you specify the shape of that stream in such a way that it says this is a protocol buffers encoded uh, binary stream versus just this is a binary stream. Um, and that we had to like leave poorly specified because otherwise you're, you're writing something where like you're, you're, it'd be more like writing it in Haskell where you define all your types up front and then your functions are really tiny. Uh-huh. Um, and where the, the, the logic of how to build that is in the type. Um, but in Erlang, it's, you know, it's dynamically typed. It's not statically typed. Oh. Um, so it has to deduce from other things what, what the shape of that type is. Mm. Interesting stuff. Uh, it's been on my list of things to check out for a while, so I'm, I'm eager to dig into those screencasts. You should. I, I think that if, you, if you've read a bit of Joe Armstrong's book, also uh, from the program, Pragmatic Programmers. Which book is that? Uh, Programming Erlang, Software for a Current World. Okay. Con- concurrent World. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and then you go to the screencast, and then that, that'll, at least for me, that was the way I really started to understand it. Awesome. Cool. So if people wanted to get in touch with uh, you, what's a mm-hmm. good way to do that? Um, I'm on Twitter, at Sean Cribbs, S-E-A-N-C-R-I-B-B-S. And uh, I'm also on GitHub as the same, mm-hmm. same handle. Um, and you can send me email, sean at basho.com. Awesome. And uh, so basho.com is Basho's site. Yes. Uh, React is on GitHub if you're looking React for it. on GitHub, yep. Uh, anything else you want to plug while we're here? You got an upcoming talk? Anything? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm talking at Strange Loop. The title of my talk is Eventually Consistent Data Structures. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be really awesome. It's about uh, data structures that automatically converge without user intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I'll also be giving a similar talk at Recon. Uh, which is a Basho uh, organized conference in San Francisco in October. And I, last I heard, we have 75 tickets left okay. um, out of about 400. So go and get one now. Do it. Don't wait. I think that actually uh, wraps things up. Thanks very much, Sean, for coming by. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been great being here. Thanks, Ben. Cool. So often on the podcast, we'll take some time to answer your questions. If you have something you'd like us to tackle on the air, you can email that question to info at thoughtbot.com or tweet to us at, at thoughtbot. Today's podcast was recorded by Sean Quenthal, edited by Edward Lovell, and produced by Chad Pytel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.